Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Corbett Barr, and Corbett's been self-employed on the internet since 2005, where he's earned a living from blogging, podcasting, online courses, memberships, and more. He created Fizzle.co, which helps people create a living doing something they love and features guest instructors like Pat Flynn, Leo Babauta, and John Lee Dumas. In addition, he also has worked with Eckhart Tolle, which we got into in this conversation. And interestingly enough, Corbett has done away and cleaned up his entire presence online. He went through a little bit of a digital cleansing, and we talked about it in this conversation. So overall, this was really informative from someone who has been putting out content and putting themselves out there online for over a decade, 15 years plus. So an OG of the internet game. And I was excited to dive into everything with him. If you enjoyed this conversation, let me know on Twitter at Hey Danny Miranda. I, my oxygen is your comments and your feedback about these episodes. So anything you think about them, let me know on Twitter. And I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation with Corbett Barr. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. So, Corbett, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Hey, I'm really happy to be here, Danny. Awesome. So, I figured we'd start things off with you at 18 years old. You got a full-time job working for the county sheriff's office as a clerk. And could you tell me a little bit about what that experience was like? Yeah, I had um, grown up very blue collar. My dad worked at a gas station and then later at a factory. And my mom worked three jobs over the holidays to be able to afford Christmas presents for me and my sister. So I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up necessarily. I didn't even know if I was going to go to college. I ended up going to community college where I lived only because I got a scholarship at the end, but neither of my parents had gone to college. So I was kind of lost at 18, to be honest. And a few things just fell into place for me right away. Uh, The first is I got this scholarship. So I decided what the heck I'm going to go to college. And then one day uh, in the summer after I graduated high school, I was planning to go to college, not sure what I was going to do for a job. In fact, I think I had just applied for a job at Subway, the sandwich shop, and they turned me down for some reason. So I was feeling pretty crappy about my prospects. But um, I was over at my girlfriend's house in the summer and someone who brought their kids to my girlfriend's mom's daycare was there. She was asking me what I was up to, what I was going to do after I graduated and so on. And I said, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I don't have a job yet, blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, you know, um, we're looking for temps down at the sheriff's office because we have a bunch of filing to do. And, and, uh, as long as you've got some clerical skills, can use the computer a little bit, you'd probably be a good fit. So that was my first gig, uh, you know, right out of college. And I started out just filing paperwork and so on. But pretty quickly, it became clear that they had all kinds of computer problems and nobody around the office that could really do much with that. So I just kept putting myself in situations where I could help out. I I was just as helpful as I could be. And pretty much um, within a couple of months, they asked me to come on full time. And then I just worked my way up. And over the course of those first few years in college, I continued to work there. I worked full time. I went to school in the mornings and at night. And then they um, promoted me, promoted me, promoted me until eventually I was the information systems coordinator, which meant I was basically in charge of all the different computer projects going on at the sheriff's office. How did you get started with computers? Well, uh, when I was seven years old or so, one of my cousins got a computer, and this is going way back to the 80s. 
Um, my one of my cousins got a computer from Radio Shack called the TRS eighty, and he was showing it to me one day. I also in school we had gotten these Apple IIe computers, and we played this game called Oregon Trail on it a lot. And so it was just kind of around at the time. Computers were this cool thing, and. I don't know if I was reading a magazine or what, but there was this new computer coming out called the Commodore 64. And it was a personal computer, meaning, you know, you could, it was a little thing where the computer was contained in the keyboard and you plugged it into a TV set as the monitor. And I think it was like three or $400, which was really expensive at the time. But somehow I begged my parents who are hardworking, but the most amazing, generous people in their lives in, in my life. And they somehow made it happen for me. They bought me a Commodore when I was like seven or eight years old. And so I would spend hours um, reading a magazine. There was a magazine called Byte Magazine, and it would have in the back of it programs. And you could spend like a day copying that program in. I didn't know what it did, but when you were done, you would see like a ball bounce across the screen or something. And that was the most exciting thing for a kid who is excited, uh, obsessed with video games. I have so many questions. Were you, um, so were you one of the only of your friends who enjoyed computers or was this a, a school-wide thing or were you just way more interested than most people? I was way more interested than most people. I would say that, um, most of my friends had video games of some sort and I had a, a video game called the ColecoVision and then a friend in the neighborhood got a Nintendo, the original Nintendo NES. And so um, there was definitely a culture of playing video games, Atari, all that kind of stuff. But as far as computers go, I was the only one that I knew with one. And I used it a lot for games as well. I mean, there were amazing games on it. You could hook up a joystick to it and so on. But I also used it for testing out programs and ideas and stuff. Um, it wasn't until middle school when I met another kid on my block who was also into computers he got an IBM PC compatible computer, which is window eventually became windows. So, uh, the two of us really spent a lot of time just geeking out on computer. What made you so fascinated by computers to begin with? I don't know something about, um, the freedom of expression and creation on a computer. It was, it was, I, I loved video games and I loved consuming them, but I also was curious about how things were made. And the idea that you could type in code into a machine and then it would do something for you, I just, uh, I knew there was power there and it seemed like it was the future, you know, it was happening right now. So that was enough to get me hooked. Yeah, it's so, so interesting. And so one of the things that in doing research for this is that you've, you've said before that you've been jealous of creative types of people mm -hmm. and creatives and it's interesting because I view people who, who do work on the computer as creative. So how do you see that connection? I do. I do as well. And I think now um, society in general is recognizing people that code as much more creative types because, yeah. you know, you are. It's like, it's like putting together a puzzle without an example, you know. And, um, and that's super fun. And I still absolutely love prototyping a new system and, and getting something up and running. And I spend a lot of time coding. Uh, and I would also say that making podcasts and making videos and that sort of thing is, is also very creative. And, and now you ask kids what they want to do for a living and they say they want to be a YouTuber, right? So it, it's definitely a creative thing. However, I think the way I grew up, real creatives were artists and writers and musicians and people like that. And I still have tremendous respect for those people. Uh, it's not an easy road trying to be a writer or to get attention for your music or something. My wife is an artist and she's been at it for a very long time. And she's just, you know, recently seeing monetary success. It's a long, long path. Um, so I romanticize that kind of creative and I'm, I'm not trying to put down the new style creative, but also I don't know when I said that, but things are changing rapidly and I would say if that kind of quote came out 10 years ago, my perspective is probably different now because so many people are expressing themselves with the tools that have been made available on the internet. Yeah. And it's so fascinating because you can read something from you 10 years ago and believe something completely different today. And obviously you did that by, by wiping away 90%, I believe, of, your, of all the things that you've put out on the internet. My perspective as someone who's 25, 
you're, I believe, 43. Is that correct? Yep. yep. It, like, it made me nervous, man, when I saw you do this because I'm like, am I going to not believe 90% of the things that I say or put out on the internet in 10 years? That's a possibility. How should I be thinking about that? Well, and and just to be clear, it's not that I didn't believe the things that I put out. I just started to feel like... Um, I felt like I created a lot of those profiles on the internet on all those different platforms because technology and the internet in general want things from us. You know, when you go on the internet, you you have all of these people and and businesses and platforms competing for your attention and they just want you to spend your time there. They want you to invest in that platform so that your effort attracts other people to that platform as well. So we start off on Instagram and and Facebook and LinkedIn and and Twitch and all these places with personal attention or personal intentions, right? We want something from that platform, but that platform is a lot more sophisticated than we are as individuals. They've spent, you know, so many people have spent time tuning it to, to keep our attention. So it's not that I didn't believe what I had said on all of these places, but uh, it's kind of like whenever you say something on the internet out there, if you aren't actively paying attention to that thing and the comments that are happening about it, it's almost like people are having a conversation with you, but you're not there or you're not listening. And I, I'm not there to represent myself. And it wasn't that I even said anything controversial. I just started to feel like there was digital baggage that I created out there and I wanted to clean it up. And and I don't know where this feeling comes from, but I also feel like it's not normal for us to have every little thing that we've uttered available for the world to see for all time. And this has only been the past 10 or 15 years that social media has really encouraged us all to say and share everything to be available for everyone. And of course, those platforms want those things to stay there because then somebody might go on and say, oh, Danny Miranda you know, said this thing back in 2015 or whatever when he was in high school and, oh my God, isn't that crazy? And maybe that you know keeps them engaged there. It doesn't necessarily mean it's bad for you or whatever. But um, I think there's power in focus. And I'm also a big fan of the open internet. And this is something that for those of us who got started really early on the internet, remember when it was all open because protocols like email are open, meaning that there's no one place that you have to go to email someone. If if I want to email you, as long as I have your address, I can email you through any server, anywhere in the world. I don't have to be a member of anything, have an account, that sort of thing. And uh, podcasting is another open platform because if I have your RSS feed, I can plug it into any player I want. And now you see what's happening with podcasting, Spotify, and now Apple with their subscriptions that they just announced. They're all trying to grab their piece of it and turn it into a walled garden. They're trying to take what is free and open on the internet and own it for themselves so that you have to go through their platform in order to consume that content, which means they can then put up barriers and paywalls and all that kind of stuff. So part of my desire to leave some of the platforms behind was just to start putting my money where my mouth is. If I believe that those platforms aren't necessarily in the best interest of society and the internet, then I should be spending more time on other platforms like podcasting, for example. I decided instead of spending time on Instagram that I was going to spend time being on uh, other shows every week this year. And I feel like that's a much better use of my time. And so my question to you, though, is do you believe that it's inevitable that open systems will turn into closed systems because people will and companies will see that there's a tension in that avenue and will try to make it their own? It's it's tough because there's there's tension here. And you have to just remember that Spotify and Apple and all these others, they pay thousands and thousands of incredibly smart people to sit around all day and think about how can we take this thing over that's happening on the internet for ourselves to create profit for ourselves and for our shareholders. And, you know, you can, we could talk about capitalism if you wanted to, but um, that 
power is always, that force is always going to be there as long as they have a profit motive. So it's up to consumers and casual users to put privacy first, to let these companies know what we value and to choose platforms that we believe are in our best long-term interest. Now, it's tough when all of your friends are on Facebook or all of your friends are on some platform. And I don't fault a business owner, for example, for wanting to be on those platforms because you might be able to grow a following there. And we see all the time, the latest kid on TikTok now has a million followers and it happened overnight, literally overnight sometimes. So there are opportunities there. But as you grow, as you um, have more opportunities, as you are able to make more choices, I just think that it is in all of our best interest and responsibility to choose open systems where we can. Hmm. So you've chosen podcasts as your main avenue. You've chosen writing and writing on your blog. Um, but I noticed you're still on Twitter and yeah. you're still on the closed system of Twitter. What went into that decision? So about uh, six months ago, I decided to start over and I literally deleted every social media post on all platforms that I had ever written. I deleted a lot of blog posts, old podcasts, old videos, stuff like that, that I just wanted to clean up to, to basically make sure that when someone encountered my digital self out there, that I was putting my best foot forward. And I, I think that's a good exercise for anyone. I then started thinking about which platforms I wanted to continue to participate in. And I looked at which ones are giving me any sort of value and which ones had a, a return on my investment of time. And in a lot of cases, there's this sort of emotional drain that happens when you spend time on a social platform. And for me, it comes down to either the comparison trap, looking at what other people are doing and not being able to continually tell my brain that that's not really who that person is. That's how they represent themselves, but it's natural for us. So the comparison trap, and then also a little bit of fear of missing out and worrying that if I'm not checking in on this platform, but then you spend a bunch of time on that platform and you realize you didn't actually accomplish anything. So that led me to the decision to basically close all of my accounts, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, you know, whatever, all the randos. I then got down to Twitter and I just thought, uh, maybe there's still something here. And I wanted to stay connected just because I have friends there that I actually enjoy talking with. And it doesn't have the emotional drain as much for me. Um, also, because I can test out ideas before I'm ready to publish them on my blog, I can just put out a tweet, see what people think about it, have a little conversation, and then see if I want to go further with it. I don't know if that decision will stick. I also think that Twitter is the closest to a public utility of all of the platforms. If you think about it, when someone wants to announce something, they go to Twitter. Our last president was on Twitter all the time, and that's where people found out what was going on. It's it's that kind of place that has this, this amazing public aspect to it. And if you listen to some of what uh, Jack Dorsey and others there are trying to do, they actually have some intention of, of using open protocols within Twitter. They have a project in the works. I don't know if they're going that way. They might just be saying that to make us all feel better about it. Um, but I think they have the greatest shot of actually making that happen. So I'm not saying it's right for everybody. It just worked out for me in that case. I don't even know if I'll be there in six months or a year. It's possible I might not be. What's been the reaction from friends and family? Uh, well, I would say that um, you find out that a lot of people actually have left platforms for a while. Uh, you know, you'll you'll get comments from people in other places. Maybe they're still on Twitter, but they aren't on Facebook anymore, or maybe they text you or whatever, and they say, "Oh, you know, I I left Facebook four years ago, and it was the greatest decision I ever made." So there's this almost this pride of the date that you first left Facebook, right? Uh, so you hear that from people, um, from business owners. I would say, you know, other entrepreneur friends. I would say they've been curious. Uh, they have mostly expressed a desire to do the same thing themselves, but a worry that their business actually depends on those platforms. In my case, I didn't find any really negative effects not from being there. Uh, I, I don't think that we have built our businesses over the years overly dependent on social media, but they've definitely played a part. So overall, I have more time. 
I uh, feel a lot better about myself. I'm glad that I'm not participating in those those channels. And I would encourage anyone who's worried about it or thinking about it to try it. In fact, most of the platforms don't want you to leave. So they give you the ability or they don't give you the ability to actually turn your account off right away. Instead, they put it on hold for 30 days or something. And if you come back, if you log in, it starts right back up. So you can basically pull the plug. And then if you change your mind within a month, you're right back up and running. Yeah, it's so interesting because I deleted Instagram a few days ago and I've gotten about a hundred messages from Instagram, emails rather, telling me to come back and that um, my stuff is available. So it's very interesting the, the type of pull that is used. What I'm curious about from your perspective is how have you found the headspace? Do you feel as if you've had more headspace? Talk to me about that. Yes, I, I do. Although... Uh, you know, you hear this about people who have a vice or an addiction. When they quit one, they often take up another, you know, and, and uh, you know, you might think smoking is a lesser of two evils. So you're happy that you're not drinking, but now you're smoking more. Um, I would say for me, I've been spending more time on Twitter than I used to, probably because I don't have Instagram to check or whatever. So that's a concern. Um, however, I do have more headspace because for me, there's this um, cognitive tension that happens when I feel like there are things that I should be doing, but I don't have time to do. And those places, I felt like I was obligated to, but I wasn't able to spend time there often, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. And then I would feel bad about that, bad about not keeping them up. And so I would go through this up and down cycle of, okay, I'm going to actually pay attention to Facebook. I, you know, I need to be posting here because it matters to my business. And I would do that for a while, but then I would feel like I dropped the ball on Instagram. And it was just this kind of whack-a-mole game of um, dealing with my guilt and obligations. And so now that I don't have those, I, I am much calmer about it. So even though I'm spending more time on Twitter, um, I would say that overall my head is much clearer. What do you think that social media is going to be like in 20 years? Because I think you were talking about, you know, what is it like for a creator to be in their 50s or 60s? I believe it was you who, who was talking about that. And it just got me thinking, like, what is social media going to be like in your 60s or 70s? Like, we don't really have an archetype for, for that type of person who uses social media that late in their life. Do you think social media will be around in 20 years? Oh, absolutely. There's no question it'll be around. Uh, so I live in Mexico in the winters every year for 12 years or so now with my wife. And we know a lot of people who are actually in their late 60s and 70s because there's retirees there. And they use Facebook a lot, let me tell you. It's where they get their news. It's it's They spend their two hours in the morning drinking their coffee, scrolling Facebook. They do it obsessively. So it works on people of all ages, you know, from unfortunately, you know, five years old all the way up till uh, you're too old to care about it anymore. And I, I haven't met anyone. I mean, we do know some people in their late 80s and I would say they don't seem to care about it. So maybe they've realized eventually at the very end of life that there's more to life than sitting in front of your tablet, <laughs> checking out what other people are doing because people are doing things all around you. You just have to, you know, start a conversation. So I think it will be around um, or I'm sure that it will be around. My hope is that, you know, they start to tamp down a little bit of the manipulation that happens on the platforms. We see them trying to do this a little bit. Facebook and Instagram have both experimented with downplaying the likes or removing the likes or allowing individuals to choose if they want to remove the likes, because really it's that number that, that makes you feel good or bad about yourself and your social standing, you know, in, in, in like tribal times, we all had to worry about our pecking order and where we stood in the social order, but you never really knew, right? You, you just kind of thought about it. But now it's almost like we all know, oh, Danny, he's doing great because he got a hundred likes on that post or whatever. So it's a very manipulative, motivating in a bad way kind of thing. And I think that they're going to tamp that down. I also hope that there may be some open protocols integrated into these so that imagine your Posts go through the Twitter network, but you're not necessarily in the Twitter app. Maybe you're in another app in a way. And I don't just mean cross-posting. I, I think there are actually protocols that would allow you to do this. Um, maybe 
you know, and and some of these exist already. There's a, a protocol called Mastodon, for example, which is more of like a peer-to-peer social networking. So anyway, uh, not to get too into the the technical weeds, but I think that there may be a little bit more portability. You know, back in the day, you couldn't take your phone number with you from phone to phone, from cell phone to cell phone. So imagine, you know, you had a Verizon number and you wanted to sign up with Sprint, you had to get a completely new phone number. And that was a great way for those companies to keep you locked in, but a terrible thing for the consumer. So they came up with something called number portability. And now it's it's common. You just expect it's my phone number. I take it where I want. I think we may eventually get to the a similar place with social media. So what would that look like in practicality? Well, uh, if Twitter didn't own your content, what if you owned your content and you took your content wherever you wanted and people could consume your content with whatever tool they wanted? Uh, a lot like you do with RSS. You know, if I publish something on my blog, it doesn't require Twitter or Facebook or anyone else, but you can consume that somewhere. And now, of course, we have an RSS-like thing, AMP, where um, Apple News, Facebook, others can pull that content from the Washington Post or whoever they care about and put that news inside of their own app. So it's a little bit more like that. Of course, they still figure out ways to manipulate that, but at least the Washington Post doesn't have to necessarily go and publish their things on every platform. They know that it can be pulled by those platforms when they publish it on their own site. Gotcha. Yeah, that that's an interesting way to think about the future of the internet. Um, I'd like to switch gears here a little bit and talk about a quote from you. Um, you published this, I believe, in 2010, so it might be a little outdated, but you said, some of the people around me think I'm throwing my life away or running from something. And I'm curious if reflecting back on yourself, if you believe those people were right or you believe that there's nuance there, I'm curious about what you believe of other people were thinking about you and if that was actually correct. Objectively, I believe those people were wrong looking back, but I don't think that means that they would think that they're wrong necessarily. And the only reason for that is we all want to validate our own decisions. So when most of your friends and family are in traditional corporate jobs, then they probably tell themselves that you're throwing your life away or that you're taking unnecessary risks or that there's something wrong with being an entrepreneur or wanting to have a popular podcast or whatever because it validates their decision. And I think that's what I was getting at in that case. At that time, I was only a few years removed from having been a Fortune 500 consultant where I was paid to travel around the world, flew first class and did all this stuff that on paper sounds amazing, but in practice is an awful lifestyle. Now, if I had stuck with that, I, I know what the outcome was. Uh, I, I had um, partners you know, who were friends in the firm then, and I know friends who stuck there and are now principals or partners in the firm and what their life is like. And I don't want that life and I don't regret that decision. Um, but at the time, it probably looked like I had a trajectory to these friends, sort of like if you're in a law firm, you know, if you stick around for 20 years and you do your job, you're probably going to make a lot of money and have a really big title. But I can also tell you that those people I've witnessed do that often have a major crisis at midlife because they climb up the ladder hoping that they're going to reach the top and feel really great about themselves, their lives, their lives, their accomplishments, but end up just feeling emptiness because it is all just a hamster wheel of earning more money so that you can spend that money on things that are supposed to make you feel good because you don't enjoy your day-to-day because the commute, the hours, the pressure, all that stuff. And uh, I have a very comfortable lifestyle. I make plenty of money. We live wherever we want. I work when I want. I work with who I want. I make all my decisions. And even if I my earnings were less than they were in, in my other life, the sliding doors of my life, whatever that would have been, uh, I would still be happy. But it turns out that you can earn just as much or more being an entrepreneur. There's just a few years that are really rough and full of uncertainty. But eventually, 
you see examples all the time of people who are running popular podcasts and, you know, charging tens of thousands of dollars for a sponsor. And it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be able to do that, but not everybody can do a lot of things. We all have to find our path in life. And if that's your path, there's no reason you shouldn't go after it. How did you come to that decision of saying, okay, I see that the road is going here and I don't want to go there. I want to go off and do my own thing and in virtually a climate when there probably weren't a lot of examples of people doing that because the internet was relatively new. Yeah. When I made the decision, we were a couple of years removed from the first internet bubble, which was nearly 20 years ago now. And it was nasty. I mean, everyone is super excited. It's a lot like it is right now, the way that people are excited about the economy, technology, all that kind of stuff, and the markets and crypto and, and all that sort of stuff. And I'm not saying it's going to burst right now, but it definitely is a possibility. So after that happened, there was you know a lot of people who had jumped into technology because it was so exciting, it was a future, suddenly had to jump back out and they, they went back to investment banking and consulting and lawyering and all the traditional kind of good jobs. But I was in San Francisco because my wife went to grad school there. We moved there. And I always had this idea in the back of my mind that I wanted to try entrepreneurship. I just wasn't sure when the right time was for me. And I think I was maybe 27, 28 or so at the time when we moved to San Francisco. And I, I was reconnecting with old colleagues. And I talked to someone I'd worked with like four or five years ago. And it turned out that he was starting a new company and he was looking actively for co-founders. So we just have, kept having conversations and it turns out it was the right time for me. That startup didn't succeed ultimately, but I was kind of at the age where I was considering business school or entrepreneurship. And I would say I learned as much or more from entrepreneurship. It didn't cost me as much as business school would have. And so I'm really glad that I made that choice. I saw somebody recently on, on Twitter talking about how glad they were that they became an entrepreneur instead of going to business school. And I think for a lot of people, especially now, that's the right choice. But once I got a taste of that, of working for myself, of trying to build my own thing, after that first startup didn't work, there was really no question about me going back to a traditional job. I just wasn't going to do it. I, I was soured uh, on that life and I was sort of, for better or worse, intoxicated by entrepreneurship. And I knew that I had to try it again. How did that first quote unquote failure actually feel in the moment? Uh, horrible, like incredibly stressful. Uh, lawyers got involved. There were shouting matches. I felt ashamed. I was really worried about what was going to happen next. We were fighting, you know, there, there was a lot of stuff happening. Uh, I felt really bad for my wife, you know, having invested so much trust in me over several years only to see this thing not work after I told her, you know, babe, this is going to go great. You know, just, just wait. And of course it didn't. So it was bad. The, the saving grace in that whole situation was that I realized how burned out I was and how, incapable I was at thinking clearly at that time. So instead of just jumping into another thing, we decided to take a sabbatical and we set off on a road trip through Mexico for six months. And I'm so glad I did that because it, it really changed the trajectory of my entrepreneurial career. And it allowed me time to clear my head, get away from all the normal social influences I was around and at that time, it was the Silicon Valley style of entrepreneurship, which is a whole different ballgame from what people are doing now on the internet. And uh, I'm really glad that I got into that. In 2010, when I said that a lot of people thought maybe I was throwing my life away or whatever, you have to remember that the creator economy or whatever you want to call it now really was in its infancy. People didn't know if you could make money blogging or podcasting because it was it was really unproven. It was almost a fluke if anyone did at the time. Uh, Tim Ferriss definitely was on the leading edge of that with his book and uh, podcasting and everything else. And, and as were a number of other people, Brian Clark from Copyblogger and, and others, Danielle Laporte. Um, but, uh, you know, from the outside looking in, I think people would say, wait a second, Corbett was in a consulting career that looked great. 
that maybe didn't work out or something. I don't know why he quit that. Then he tried to be an entrepreneur and that didn't work out. And now what's he doing? Blogging? Like how he must be, he must be losing it, right? His whole thing. And so um, I had to work really hard and, and maybe that gave me a little bit of a, a chip on my shoulder, something to prove. And that maybe gave me the endurance to get through those lean, painful years in the beginning of that second phase of entrepreneurship. Going back to the sabbatical, how do you make the decision that you're going to take X amount of time? How do you make the decision that you're going to go to Mexico of all places? My wife had uh, recently graduated from grad school. So she was in the beginning of her career and it was easy for her to take time off. I thought that if I went into something right away, I might make a bad decision. And I knew also that on the sabbatical, I would be doing work in a way. I would be doing self-exploration. I would be thinking about how intentionally I wanted to build my next business. So I felt like I could make progress without having to immediately start another business and that I could build my next thing on a better foundation, a foundation built with more self-realization, self-actualization, that sort of thing. And that's exactly what it was. I mean, there's something about escaping from 50, 60 hour weeks in the middle of a, a busy city like San Francisco to feeling the sand beneath your bare feet and a warm ocean to really clear your head. And it was easy for me to spend several hours a day reading and researching and thinking about things and having conversations with people I trusted and meeting new people and, and all that sort of stuff. So it was really useful for me. In terms of deciding on the sabbatical, um, it just seemed like a, a, a good clean break. I had been at my career for you know 10 years or so. And um, we also had always romanticized the idea of getting to know Mexico for some reason, because it's so close to us, yet so far away and so foreign in some ways. And uh, we really wanted to just get on the ground and explore and get to know the country. What types of things did you explore personally? Well, um, I started asking myself questions about the nature of career and life. And the fact that most people sort of assume that your career is a means to an end and the end is retirement or becoming wealthy or young enough so that you can do something in, that you would enjoy. And my wife being an artist sort of had this other example. We've seen plenty of documentaries of like this adorable 85 year old couple in New York City who's living the exact same life they've lived for 50 years in their apartment. They wake up, they read the paper, they go for a walk, and then they, you know, he writes and she's a painter or whatever. And they, and they still do that today, even though they're 85, because they actually enjoy their work and they were able to live their lives around their career instead of the other way around, right? And I was wondering if entrepreneurship could provide that path so that I didn't have to um, sort of live my life at the edges in the evenings and on the weekend. What if I actually loved what I did, but also could do what I did whenever I wanted to and wherever I wanted to? And so that led me down the path of diving into topics like location independence, digital nomading, and lifestyle design. And uh, Tim Ferriss and the 4-Hour Workweek was certainly part of that. And also there were a lot of people at the time starting to wonder about location independence, which now is remote work and everybody's been doing it because of the pandemic. But at the time, it wasn't all that possible. We didn't have Zoom. What were some of the books you explored? You mentioned the four-hour work week. Any other notable? Uh, the four-hour work week, um, The Alchemist. Have you ever read The Alchemist? It, it's just a classic, easy read that makes you you think about you know what your life is about. Um I don't know. I, I, I would say that honestly, I spent a lot more time reading blogs and consuming podcasts and listening to people than I do necessarily consuming and remembering books. And there's a whole cadre of people from the 2008 to 2010, 11 period who were writing about location independence, 
um, in digital nomading and so on. And a lot of those people I'm still friends with, they're still out there on the internet. A lot of that overlapped with travel blogging as well. And so just plugging into the conversations that were happening at the time, it's a lot of times it's really hard to write a book that is super on top of the zeitgeist and what's happening with technology and so on. So the the foundational books, you know, obviously the ones um, that get you to consider what life is about are important, but podcasts and and blogs sometimes are the best source. Definitely. Um, one thing I noticed from looking at you and your your blog and and everything you've done is that you were talking about people who would go on to do incredible things. People like Pat Flynn and John Lee Dumas and. It was really interesting to me to one research old blog posts of yours, but also to see who you're working with today and knowing that I was following those people in 2010 too. So it leads me to ask, what types of traits do you use to evaluate talent in people? Um, so I, I think there's there's kind of two ingredients for me. They are maybe three. People who are smart but also get things done and are humble about it. And I think those are three really important qualities. I would say that if you're smart and get things done, but not humble, you can still get a lot. I just don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time with you. And, and we, you know, there are examples of people like that. And, um, and some, some of them by nature of not being humble by being ego driven can actually do a lot. But for me, the people that I, identify as talent and want to be around. They clearly have a vision. They clearly grasp new concepts quickly. So they're, they're, they're great thinkers, but they're also able to take that and apply it and actually do something. And this was a trap that I think I was in, in my twenties, where I felt like being smart was enough. I didn't have the work ethic and probably it was just my upbringing in school, I coasted a lot. I was able to kind of do the bare minimums, but still do well on the tests and so on. And so I never really got that homework kind of work ethic. And same same for me in college. So I think there's a trap for people who are smart and feel like that should be enough because you ideas, as Derek Sivers says, are just a multiplier of execution. And the best idea in the world is worth nothing if you don't do everything to make it come to life. So people who are smart and get things done, and then looking at the time, identifying people that I've hired, and also people that I've just gotten to know and befriended on the internet. You mentioned Pat Flynn, John Lee Dumas, um, others that I've hired who are doing amazing things, Chase Reeves, Barrett Brooks, Steph Crowder, Caleb Wojcik, a friend of mine who passed away that I was fortunate enough to work with for a long time. Scott uh, Dinsmore was absolutely brilliant and was on an incredible trajectory. So you can see that spark in people. I'd say, you know, the, the fact that they're smart a lot of times comes across in curiosity and being engaging in conversation and so on. But, you know, I think being able to identify that talent, the reason it matters is of course, if you're going to do anything meaningful, you're probably gonna have to work with other people. But also, even if you're an independent entrepreneur, a solopreneur, or whatever, you need to identify those folks when they're still getting started so that you have this amazing network of people five years or 10 years from now. Because it's really hard to just ring up Tim Ferriss or Gary Vee or whoever you like and say, hey, I'd love to be on your podcast. Some people could do it if they're really creative, but for the most part, you're going to have to start a tier or two down. And if you're going to do that, you might as well try to find people that are going to grow with you so that five years from now, you're trading spots on podcasts and it's mutually beneficial. You mentioned just now that you were at one point smart, but not hardworking. You didn't get that until a certain point. So at what point did it click that you needed to work hard as well? Was there a moment in that evolution? Um, yeah, I think it was realizing that the, it's, it's this productivity thing for me. It's recognizing that the enjoyment or lack thereof of an individual task 
isn't necessarily what matters. It's what is this task helping me accomplish in the future? And th- this is really an existential human- question for humanity. Do you just hang out all day and enjoy yourself because you're in the present, in the moment, enjoying it? Or is there something that you want to accomplish in the future? And there's there's a tension there because, of course, we know that we should be mindful, we should be present, we should be enjoying today because tomorrow might not ever come, and that's possible for all of us at any time. However, I think if you get to the end of your life and you look back and you recognize that you just lived a life of hedonism where you were just enjoying yourself day to day and never worked hard to actually accomplish something, you'll realize that there was something missing. So there, there's something to to both of those. I, I changed my Twitter profile recently to say that I'm a, an aspiring bon vivant with workaholic tendencies. And what that means to me is, you know, a bon vivant is someone who's known for enjoying the finer things in life, for enjoying long, lazy dinners, for enjoying travel, all that sort of stuff. And I love all of that. But I also love now that I've gotten into it, working hard enough that I know I am moving towards something meaningful because that pursuit of goals, not necessarily the accomplishment of goals, but the regular pursuit of goals that doesn't burn me out because it's a marathon, not a sprint, that leads to a lot of fulfillment as well as being juxtaposed with the having a three-hour dinner with friends. What are you pursuing these days? What's on your mind is that North Star that you're chasing? Well, uh, several things. Uh, My wife and I just went into escrow on a big home in Northwest Portland, and uh, we're going to be renovating it. Uh, It has development potential. We're going to be doing a lot of things there. I'm really excited about that. I love physical spaces and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I have two businesses right now, Fizzle, which is um, a video training library and community for entrepreneurs. And I have a community platform, which is sort of like a Slack or Facebook groups called Palapa. Both of those things take an enormous amount of time and effort. And I'm currently seeking help from potential co-founders, partners, that sort of thing, so that I can better fulfill my vision. Another tension that you have or that I have is this difference between doing everything on my own, which is really fun because a lot of the rolling up the sleeves I like, but accomplishing meaningful things usually requires getting other people involved in some way, whether they're partners or employees or co-founders or whatever. So the pendulum for me is swinging back that direction. And so I'm seeking people to, to help out on those things. You mentioned Palapa and in doing research for this conversation, I found out that you're working with Eckhart Tolle or Eckhart Tolle. I don't know how to pronounce that. Yeah. How did that partnership come to be? Well, uh, back in 2012 or so, when I was uh, individual blogging, helping people uh, both as a consultant as well as with online courses, I offered a coaching package. And one of the people who took me up on that coaching package to get her site off the ground is now running the business side of things for a company that manages Eckhart Tolle, as well as a number of other spiritual and mindfulness type gurus. And she brought me in to bring Palapa in and to advise on several other things. So that's a case where I offered a coaching package that was limited. I could only do a couple of people because it was very hands-on. I had a number of applications. I chose a couple of people to work with. And one of them really had that spark. And and she is a rising star. She's doing amazing things. I'm super happy to be able to support her in this effort. But now it's paying back enormously because Eckhart is one of our biggest customers. Um, and it's a really great name to have as a customer. How did you choose her specifically? Well, um, you know, there are markers, I think, when you're looking for evidence of people who are smart but get things done. You can look at their past and have them explain projects to you, try to get a feel for the part that they've played on the project and help have them explain to you problems that they worked through so that you can start to understand how their brain works and how they dissect a problem because that's one of the most important skills we have today. Before AI replaces us, we all have to get really good at creating things for humans to consume and, and at breaking down problems that haven't been solved before. 
Um, so looking at that, and then she happened to have a couple of classic markers of uh, capability, you know, classic markers being somewhere that you've worked, uh, somewhere that you've gone to school, that sort of thing. And sometimes those can work. I, I don't take those at face value. I'm not one to look at a degree or a diploma or a you know resume and say, oh, that person's for me. But if you do that, you interview someone, you get to know them and it all lines up, then that can be a contributing factor. Yeah, makes sense. So you brought up also Fizzle before. And in doing research, I saw so many incredible testimonials and people loving it so much. And so my question for you is, why do you think people love Fizzle so much? I would say it's because we care about the outcomes that our customer achieves. And that means a lot of times staying on the phone for way over what would seem like a reasonable amount of time for a Zoom call. It means checking in with people outside. It means forwarding people opportunities and you know, just really genuinely being invested in someone's success and making that your North Star. I think whatever venture you're in, it helps to have a single North Star that tells you whether or not you are accomplishing um, success for both you and your customers. And it always has to be both. For Fizzle, it is making sure that our customers are making progress in their own businesses towards their own dreams. And then all of our decisions flow from that. In Palapa, it's making sure that we are creating a platform that helps communities engage. So if you, Danny, have a community of people who listen to your podcast, we want to give you the tools to engage your community outside of the normal platforms uh, in a place that, that you own. And those North Star things, I think, can just help answer so many questions. Because if you don't have one, you can get into that pros and cons analysis paralysis of trying to make decisions. Well, maybe we should do it this way because it's cheaper, or maybe we should do it this way because so-and-so did it. But if you know what you're working towards, then it, it helps a lot. Those are both two qualitative descriptions. Do you have any quantifiable metrics then to say like, yes, we're working towards that? Is that accurate? Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in, in a subscription business, of course, you look at um, churn and activation. So activation is on the front when someone signs up for a free trial, how, what percentage of them actually take some actions to experience the platform and uh, get stuck in, actually become a user. And then churn is how long do people stay on your platform? We also have done surveys of our audience to find out the kind of progress that they've individually made towards their goals from using our platforms. So there are all sorts of quantitative things. I would say that I have experimented at times with being a little obsessed with quantitative dashboards and trying to instrument and measure everything. And then I've gone back to just doing everything by the gut. And I would say um, the, the right answer is probably somewhere in between. I don't think you need more than two or three real serious metrics. If you have an organization with you know a lot of people in it, then of course, all of the top line people, you know, your VPs or whatever, they would have their own metrics. But if you're a small organization, a single person, you really can't focus on more than a couple of things at once. In fact, I take that all the way to in a given day, I only expect myself to be able to accomplish two or three things. And if I get those tasks done, they better be important tasks, first of all. But I also don't have to beat myself up because I didn't get the 10 things on my list done. If there are other things at the end of the list past the two or three that were important, I'm okay with them moving to the next day. You know, Fizzle and Palapa are two closed systems, right? So how do you think about that in your pursuit of taking out most of the closed systems in your own life? It's a good question. Um, and I think one of the challenges of uh, open systems is being able to build a business on top of them and uh, to turn that into something. A lot of what we publish at Fizzle is open, actually. We have a podcast, we have hundreds of blog articles, we've published tons of YouTubes, all that sort of stuff. The, the closed piece is something that people pay for. And I think until we figure out a way to open and monetize at the same time, there will need to be a little bit of uh, closed piece to it. 
and this is again back to the the profit motive and the tension that that people feel but i think you also just have to consider the um the decisions that you're making to keep people coming back and like instagram sending all of those nasty messages like you're going to miss out your life is going to be ruined if you don't come back i think that's overreach and it's not actually in your in the interest of um the their consumers necessarily they just want you to come back at all costs so in our case if my goal is legitimately to help people make progress in their business and it comes to a point where they've outgrown fizzle or their business isn't the right fit or something i am more than happy to see them go on i also recognize that sometimes people come back either as a customer or as someone who is going to help you on the journey in the future and so if you put a really great impression in someone's mind they don't forget that and it's regularly that i hear from someone i haven't talked to for 5 or 10 or 15 years from the internet or from my career who comes across something that i've done and they say oh my god i can't believe it i haven't heard from you in so long i'm doing this now and you know i think i could help you out or we could work together and it's just an amazing synergy that happens because i know them from their my experience with them as a customer and they know that that i'm a genuine caring person who has their best interests in mind doing the right thing is always the right thing as gary vanderchuk would say but <laughs> um that. where did where did that come from in you was that something you always had or was that something you've built over time Well, my parents are the kind to always do the right thing. They're the kind to always show up to help you move or pick you up from the airport or do any of that kind of stuff. And I think that was just instilled in me in a very young age. I would say there's a there is a category of people in this country and maybe in all countries, but who are really earnest, hardworking, caring and will give you the shirt off their back. The trick I would say is doing that in a way that also has your own interests in mind because I think that it's easy to do that and um to maybe not be taken advantage of but to not be looking after yourself and to be building something better for yourself. And I I would say that if if we pay attention to bettering ourselves, bettering our circumstances and to building something that can serve a lot of people, then we are better equipped to pass on that generosity and that caring to people around us and to help other people. So, I think there's a there's a balance there and and I've just gotten on a a track where I'm trying to do both at the same time. I'm realizing that doing better or or doing good is always the right thing, would you say? Doing the right thing is always the right thing. I like yeah. that. Um So I I realize that and that doing the right thing is often the way to accomplish what I want. If you put someone's best interest in mind and give them a tool to help them do that, they will help you accomplish what you want, but you also need to charge for that thing. And it's okay to charge for that thing because if there's true value there, you know, if if you give someone a a podcast episode or if you give someone a tool where they can spend $30 a month with you or they can spend $200 for a course or whatever and then turn that into something that's of more value to them then it's a win-win scenario. Mm. Something I'm I'm thinking about these days and I I appreciate you bringing that to my attention. Good. So, thank you. Um is there anything else you'd like to mention or anything else you'd like to tell the audience or talk to me about before we wrap well, it up? I you know I know that there is a ton of uncertainty in entrepreneurship and and with doing your own thing if you're if you're thinking about you know uh building a YouTube channel or a Twitch stream or a podcast or whatever there's so much uncertainty can I do it am I right the, the right person um is this for real do people actually make money doing this am I too late is there too much competition right we're all thinking about all those sorts of things and I would say that if you're having those thoughts it's completely normal every entrepreneur has them i had them it's only after 5 or 10 years of being in entrepreneurship that you start to gain some comfort with the uncertainty and you start to realize that i can make this work i don't know what the actual um inputs will be what the outcomes will be what hurdles i'm going to accomplish whether if i start 
you know, trying to build this thing that I won't end up actually building this completely other thing that I'm not sure of right now, don't even know about. So all of that is totally normal. And it's more likely, I think, sometimes when you're even younger, because you have all these friends and family around you saying, like, you're crazy. Like, what are you thinking? You know, just go get a safe, comfortable job. So um, if you are thinking about doing this thing, there's no harm in trying it for a while because you will experience personal growth. You will gain skills. You will meet people. You will do a lot of things that will be valuable to you, whether you actually succeed with your specific goal or not. And those things that you gain that are valuable will be useful to you down the road, whether you continue the entrepreneurship path or you decide to be a consultant or an advisor or a freelancer or an employee or whatever it is. It's a beautiful, beautiful statement there. Where can people find more from you and more from Corbett Bar? I would just head over to CorbettBar.com and uh, you can find all of the latest things that I'm up to there. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time. Thank, thank you for the wisdom. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure people did as well. Awesome. Thanks, Danny, for having me on. Appreciate it. Hope you guys enjoyed the conversation with Corbett Barr as much as I enjoyed recording it and putting it out there. Just wanted to send you some final parting words of appreciation from me to you for listening into the final moments. I know your time is valuable and I really appreciate yours. If you have any thoughts about the episode, let me know on Twitter at Hey Danny Miranda. Looking forward to hearing from you. And I am so appreciative of you. I'll see you guys in the next one. Peace.